Good morning. Josh? Did you want the... Oh, you don't need it? Okay. <laughs> it's always great to be told that you need something and then to come up and be like, where is it? <laughs> oh, that poor lad, he's so confused. <laughs> um, it's, it's such a blessing to be here. I know every, everyone keeps telling me, uh, thank you for coming to, to serve us. And whether it was the last time I was here or this time again, I feel like I'm served every time I come. It's such a blessing to be here. The blessing is mine. Last night, um, Ali and Robert hosted, and oh my goodness. Talk about exceptional caring and thoughtfulness, right? Amazing. The last time I was here, um, Mark and Leslie hosted, and they were oh, amazing too. It makes sense why this church is so blessed. It makes sense why this community is what it is. I mean, the last time after I was done preaching, I went to the back and I was just meeting some of you, and I left driving home and said, wow, Lord, that was, what, what, that was so amazing. What a great group of people. Almost makes this sermon out of place to talk about community. Y'all obviously have it down. I should just say a few things and get off. <laughs> and be on my way, because clearly you don't need it. Um, if you're new to Grace Presbyterian, I, I just want to really say to you, as, as someone who's only been here now two times, I think you've found a good church to check out, to really ask the questions that you're asking. Um, it's a good community of people here. Really thankful that you found uh, your place here. If you'll join me now, um, why don't I read the text, pray, and we'll jump right in. The text comes to us from 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 14 to 20. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing? Where, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as He chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. Heavenly Father, we we come to you this morning. And Father, we pray that you would make known to us our need and make known to us your supply. That Father, we would see our need for community not only met in you, in your Son, in your Spirit, but also in this body of your people. Father, we pray that we would so cultivate a community of belonging that is for Christ, in Christ. One that celebrates the individual dis distinctness of all its members while holding fast to the inseparable collective identity that we share in our communion with Christ. Father, we pray for your grace. We pray for our lives. Christ and me pray. Amen. We all have a heart for community. And that's because, as the Bible teaches us, we are made for community, for deep, meaningful relationships. It's hardwired into us. It's who we are. And you don't have to be a Christian to believe that. In fact, there's actually already a large and still growing amount of research in the social sciences that tell us that people thrive in community, and that outside of community, it's quite detrimental to our health. You and I need community. When God says in Genesis 1, let us make man in our image after our likeness, we are to understand, among other things, among other things, that we are made to be relational beings, re reflecting 
the relational being of our triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And so there's a sense in which Adam, of course, could not have known peace without Eve. And that's something for us to understand there. That Adam, before the fall, before sin, he had a need for relationship, for connection, for people. He knew this need as a part of who he was long before he sinned. And that's to say that needing community with other people is not a sin problem. It's not a sign of brokenness or deficiency in you. Needing community, that's the real you. That's the good you. It's the good you to need people. And you shouldn't go without it. You know, we have hunger to tell us that we need food. We have loneliness as another kind of pain to tell us we need people. There is no glory in not eating. There is no glory in going without human connection. It's not a deficiency. It's the real you. But the alarming reality is this. In an age where making fast and broad connections through social media platforms is easier than ever before, loneliness is surprisingly on the rise. And what does that mean? Well, first of all, it means that if you're feeling lonely, you're not alone. <laughs> Oddly enough. You're not alone. It's actually no longer considered a problem of the few. It's fast becoming a, a crisis, a public health crisis if not already one at that. And it's likely to grow here in America as well as abroad. Just earlier this year, uh, as probably most of you are aware, the United Kingdom appointed a minister of loneliness. A minister of loneliness, someone who is charged with the task of under understanding and addressing this crisis. You're not alone growing problem for a lot of people. It also means that the, the traditional approach to remedying loneliness, it's not working. The idea that you should just go out more and spread yourself thin over more connections, or maybe even just plug yourself into small exclusive communities, it's not working. If it was working, loneliness wouldn't be growing. But it is. And actually, I'd venture to say that some of us feel lonelier now than ever before. After putting ourselves out there. Spreading ourselves thin. Meanwhile, we're finding out just how serious this uh, feeling of isolation and disconnect actually is. Just last summer, at the 125th Annual Convention of the American Psychological Association, Julianne Holt Lundstad, a professor of psychology at Brigham Young University, she presented evidence from two meta-analyses on the effects of social connection on health. And her first analysis of 148 studies showed that people with strong social connections have uh, a 50% uh, lower risk of dying early compared to those who lack strong social connections strong social circles. That, uh, and, and the other 70 studies that they uh, examined looked at, they showed that people who don't have uh, relationships outside, connections, strong social connections, it contributes to early death. One study coming out of the UK says that to lack strong social connections is as harmful to you as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. That's something to think about. It's as harmful to you to lack social connection, meaningful, deep social connection, as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. It's that painful. Of course, there's already been studies that show that loneliness uh, increases your risk for uh, heart disease as well as stroke. All that is simply to say, it's quite literally killing us. It is very much a public health crisis. And it's because we're hardwired for connection, for community. 
But before we just lunge into any kind of community, we ought to pause. It's one thing to know we need community, and it's entirely another thing to know what kind of community we need and how to go about seeking it. If you've, if you've ever hurt someone that you deeply, deeply love, then you know that just wanting connection is not enough. If you've been hurt by someone you deeply love, then you know seeking community is far from easy. It's far from easy. People say, I'd rather be alone. Maybe you've said that. I've certainly said that in my life. I'd rather be alone. We say that not because loneliness feels okay, but rather because the fear of rejection, or rejection itself, hurts more. Or the pain that we feel after hurting someone we love, that hurts more. Broken relationships and rejections hurt more than loneliness, and so sometimes we'll say things like, I'd rather be alone. Living with loneliness is like living in a glass house. You know, you look out at the world and you see all these other people. They have community. They have that thing that you don't have. As you look out at them, there's a, a real pain that you feel. They have it. You don't. And it's not jealousy. It's just this pain, this raw pain. But, of course, they in turn look through that same window pane and they see you. And you see them seeing you alone, being third wheel, if you will. And that has a way of sharpening that pain, does it not? But even that pain pales in comparison to something like rejection. Rejection is like getting kicked back through the glass into your place of loneliness. Now there's cuts everywhere, glass everywhere, despair everywhere. We all need connection. We're made for it. But, that's, but just having a heart for community just simply isn't enough. If you've been hurt, or someone you love has been hurt, or you've hurt someone, or someone you've loved has hurt, it changes the way you approach this need for community. It changes, it changes what you look for in a community and how you go about seeking it. And I'd like to talk about that next. What kind of community should we seek? A social researcher, Dr. Brene Brown, asked a large group of eighth graders, basically 13-year-olds, uh, eighth graders, to break into groups and come up with the differences between fitting in and belonging. Fitting in and belonging. When are you just fitting in and when are you belonging? And this is what they came up with. Three things. Belonging is being somewhere where you want to be and they want you. Fitting in is being somewhere where you want to be and they don't care whether you're there or not. Belonging is being accepted for you. Fitting in is being accepted for being like everyone else. If I get to be me, I belong. If I have to be like you, I fit in. Okay? Pretty helpful, right? But that's not to disparage fitting in communities entirely. Sometimes they're quite helpful, especially in a climate like ours where humanity seems so divided uh, moments where people just hide their distinctives, their, their differences, and, and just celebrate the collective. Those can be quite helpful and healing experiences. You know, if a local team wins the championship, that's been a, it's been a while for us New Yorkers. But if a local team wins a championship, there's a parade. Everyone goes, shows up to that parade wearing the same colors, singing the same songs, the same chants. And for that moment, we're not divided by political ideologies or, or religious you know, commitments, race. All of that stuff for the moment is lost just to celebrate that collective identity. 
It's healing, right? It reminds you that you have all these other people, and they're people. You go to a concert, the lights go off to hide the individual attendees, and all you get to experience is that unified voice singing the same lyrics. And you, and you remember that you belong to a, a larger humanity. And when our voices are, you, are, are, are sung in unison, there, there's something powerful about that. And that's good. What about collective pain, when, like funerals? You choose to wear uh, the same dark colors, black or gray, in, 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 a, in a show of solidarity and grieving rather than your more usual colorful choices. And that provides healing, does it not? It's helpful. But if that's all you have, just fitting in, well, it becomes it's quite deficient and actually even harmful. If all you're doing is fitting in and hiding your true self, well, then you're surrounded by thousands of people only to be acutely aware of the fact that even with all these people around you, they don't know you. And you don't know them. And it has a way of stripping away your hope and really filling you with despair because if you're surrounded with this many people and they still aren't connected to you and you're not connected to them, then you wonder whether you'll ever be connected. If you're fitting in and you're choosing what to, show, what to show people and what not to show in order to be accepted, there's a shame there that tells you, hide these parts of you that people will not accept. And you fit in. And that shame produces a second shame because you have to look yourself in the mirror afterwards. And then you realize you weren't true to yourself. And you hate that you hid that part of you. So there's that double shame. And that double shame can be quite painful and crippling. Belonging, true belonging, is, is an invitation to belong to a collective community, to, to, be, to be part of a larger body with other people without sacrificing your distinctness. It's saying to you... We, we, we need you to be you. We need you to be you. We want you to be who you are. Our community needs that. Okay? We don't want you to look like everyone else. We want you to look like you. We want, we want you to be you, your distinct self. We know true belonging is better than fitting in. These eighth graders know that. We know that. But yet we still choose to fit in. Why? Could it be that we are afraid of rejection, of not being wanted, that if the people we so deeply want to share life with, if they know everything about us, they may not want us. We want to avoid getting kicked back through the glass into, into that place of despair and pain. So we say, you know what, I'd, I'd rather hide this stuff moving forward now, because that was an awful experience. Let me, put, let me put the image of myself that I know is more palatable to these people. Because I'm afraid of being alone again. Or it could be that we're looking for easy communities, especially in light of how demanding our lives are. I would gather most of us work 50, 60, 70 hours a week. Then we have our families. Then we have perhaps a dozen more responsibilities. So yeah, we look for easy communities, easy fits. But easy fits are all about standardization, right? Being uniform. You sand down the contours, you polish away the texture so that the building blocks come together nice and smooth. 
But the problem is once you become cookie cutter people, and you polish away and sand down all of this, the, 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 the individual distinctives, there is this alarming sense that you are also replaceable. Because if you're like everyone else, well, everyone else can take your place. My daughter has a set of wooden blocks, and of course, they are uniform. She kicks them around, she throws them around, and I don't care if she loses one. Because why? They're all uniform. You can replace them. Some time ago, my, my wife and I, we, we were at a church fellowship function, and they had uh, puzzles for little groups, for small groups to work through and kind of chat and talk. And it was like a 500-piece puzzle. Obviously, the objective was not for us to finish it then and there, but people took them home, and we took one home, and we finished it, and we turned, it turned out to be this amazing time, right? We got to talk and share and work on this thing together, and afterwards, I voluntold her that we were going to uh, work on a thousand-piece puzzle, and she, uh, she went along with it, and for two nights, we, ha- again, had this great experience of working on a thousand-piece puzzle, and of course, without her knowing, I bought a 4,000-piece puzzle. It's only four times harder. No. No. (laughs) She comes home and she's like, what is that? (laughs) I'm like, let's work on this. And she's like, no, we're not. So I I got to it. I started, you know, separating the pieces into categories. Here are all the border pieces. Here are all the pieces of this color. Here are all the pieces that help me understand where all the other pieces go. And... I, I put them into, you know, groups, right? And I put them away, and I never touched it again. Because that took, like, five hours right there. And it was, I did it alone. That defeated the purpose. It's still there under our, our coffee table at home. Well, one day my daughter, she sees the box, and she's trying to open it up. And uh, I'm like, no, you can't touch that. You can't touch that. Why? Because someday I might want to work on it again. And I know that if my daughter gets her hands on the pieces, I'm going to lose at least one. Right? And, and what's the fear there? Because if you lose one, even one, it's not replaceable. It's not replaceable. You can't just plug and play another piece. That shape that color. And so even while we may not know where that piece goes at the time, we will certainly guard it, treasure it, until we know where it fits. That's, that's belonging. When you're in a community where they say, oh, I need you to be your unique, distinct self. Yeah, we, we may not know, you may not know how you fit, but guess what? We believe you do. So please stay. Please work with us to figure out how we can thrive together. That's true belonging. When the Apostle Paul describes the body of Christ here in 1 Corinthians 12, yeah, I am coming to the text. Thank you for waiting. When the Apostle Paul describes the body of Christ here in 1 Corinthians 12, I want to ask you if this is not, at the very least, a community of belonging. One that celebrates individual distinctness while inseparably joining them together in collective identity. Let me read it again for us. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that that does not make it any less part of the body. If the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing Where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many members, yet one body. The 
this is the community you were made for. You being you, inseparably joined to other people, thriving together. In The Weight of Glory, C.S. Lewis helpfully explains this very passage. He writes, how true membership in the body uh, differs from inclusion in a collective. When he says that, you're, you are to think about fitting in communities, communities where you just fit in. How does it differ from communities where you just fit in? Maybe seen in the structure of a family, the structure of a family. The grandfather, the parents, the grown-up son, the child, the dog, and the cat are true members in the organic sense precisely because they are not members or units of a homogenous class. They are not interchangeable. Each person is almost a species in himself. If you subtract any one member, you have not simply reduced the family in number, you have inflicted an injury on its structure. He said it better than anyone else. I just figured, you know what? Why even put it in my own words? Here it is. If you lose a foot, the whole body has to compensate. I think, Lord, that's true. <laughs> if you lose one member, the whole body suffers because it has to adjust. There's the pain of that loss that everyone else feels. You know, if I celebrate your presence, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to grieve your absence. If I, if I tie myself to you, if I attach myself to you and, and, and you to me, when that separation comes, the tearing is always devastating on both sides. Here is the community we long for, a community that calls us to be committed to our true selves while at the same time inseparably weaving us into the lives of all others. I find the words of Thomas Merton, uh, the Catholic uh, monk here, quite helpful. The, the destiny of each one of us is intended by the Lord to enter into the destiny of his entire kingdom. And the more perfectly we are ourselves, the more we are able to contribute to the good of the whole church. For each person is perfected by the virtues of a child of God, and these virtues show themselves differently in everyone since they come to light in the lives of each one of the saints under a different set of providential circumstances. When Thomas Merton describes providential circumstances, he means to include there the community you already belong to. That's providence right there, where you are, people around you. So what he's really saying is if you're, if you're on this journey as an individual trying to figure out who you are as a person, the way that that's drawn out is actually through the people around you. And so you need to commit to a community. You need community to find yourself, who you are. It's kind of like, you know, my eyes are dark brown to black, so nothing will ever bring the color out. <laughs> but for those of you who have uh, fairer colored eyes, you know, you have that sweater or that shirt that really makes the color come out, right? Well, people do that for us. Our community makes that, that color, something that might go unseen, really pop and come out. It takes a community to see, of, of different people to see all the different facets of you as an individual. So yeah, if you're looking for self-discovery, it's in community. But at the same time, what, what, what Thomas Merton is saying is, he's also saying that if you want to contribute to a community, you have to know yourself. 
have to know who you are, what your strengths are. You have to be committed to, to you, how the Lord is developing you, shaping you. You need both. And you certainly get that in the body of Christ. The gospel and the grace of our Lord actually brings us to enjoy this very kind of community. So let's spend some time asking how. How does the gospel and the grace of our Lord bring us to enjoy this kind of community? And we're going to go back to 1 Corinthians 12. As I understand it, and this is my own thoughts on it, communities of belonging at least require these three things, vulnerability, commitment, and generosity. Vulnerability to put yourselves out there, commitment to say, you know what, I'm, I'm sticking it with you through the rough patch, and generosity to give people a chance, among other things. The gospel and grace of Christ anchors us with peace so that we can be vulnerable. The gospel and grace of Christ guides us to make those very commitments. And the gospel and grace of Christ changes us to be generous. So that's the remainder of our time. One of the great uh, fears that I already spoke on that keeps us from communities of belonging is this fear of rejection, closely associated with shame, right? That someone might see something in us or about us or something we've done, and they won't accept us because of it. Again, we hide it. How does the gospel and the grace of Christ speak to that? Well, first, our Lord Jesus and this is something that matters a lot to me. When you look yourself in the mirror, you are never seeing yourself in the truest light if you as a believer are not seeing yourself in Christ. If Jesus Christ and what he has done for you is not the most defining characteristic of who you are, then you're not seeing yourself truly. Everything he did for you, everything that he is for you, you being a, a child of God, a member of his body, loved by him, cherished and treasured by him, that's who you are. your imperfections, that, all that stuff, not central. Christ is central. Him in your life, that's central. When he says here that we were baptized into, Christ, into Christ's one body, he's saying you were brought into Christ and that has become your central identifying marker. That's the real you. That's the important you. As for all of the things that we are legitimately ashamed of, things in our past, things that we have done, the gospel tells us that Christ took that shame and that guilt and he took it to the cross on his shoulders and he nailed it to the cross and it did not come down. He died for our guilt and shame. He died for all the things that we hate, even about ourselves, our shame in particular, so that we would never be rejected by the one person's, one being's acceptance that we need most. Our God took the place of rejection that you and I would never be cast off. He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In our place, with our sin, so that you and I would never be forsaken by God. 
never be rejected by God. He carried the cross outside the city gates so that you would be brought in to the new city. And you would come in, not afraid of whether you'll be rejected at the door, but confident knowing that a seat has been prepared for you at the table. You know, when we go to an event that we haven't been invited to, it's, it's risky because you don't know if there's, a, there's overflow seating. And so you, you kind of drag your feet, you're not really sure, and gosh, what if they turn, what if they reject you at the door? But when you know there's a seat for you in there, even if the guy at the door says, uh, no, you demand to be seated, check again. My name is there. Gives you a kind of confidence to show up. That's what the acceptance of God does to us as people. His acceptance, Almighty God's acceptance, matters most to us. In Him, we live and move and have our being. His love, His acceptance is absolutely foundational to our sense of peace. And when we have that, peace. It allows us to be vulnerable with other people. An imperfect analogy would be, at least for me, I've always been afraid of rejection my entire life. I was sharing a little bit about that with, uh, with Robert and Allie this morning. And Once they had my wife, I kind of just went, whatever. Because <laughs> at the end of the day, I don't have to go home to you. I got her. She wants me. She has me. And that's okay. It frees me up to just be me. That might not always be a good thing. (laughs) You have that with the Lord. You know? You know, in the Old Testament, when when God says that he's like a shepherd, when he shepherded Israel out of Egypt, he, he, he went before them and he was their rear guard. They needed that on their way to the promised land. Even when you know there's something good in front of you, a, bel- a community of belonging, there's still that, 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 that trepidation, that fear that arrests you from moving forward. And God says, I will be your peace. I will guard you. I am here for you. I'm your, I'll go before you and I'll be your rear guard. So be vulnerable as you trust me. I'm your peace. The gospel gives us that peace to show up and say, here I am with all my imperfections, but you know what? The Lord has made me who I am, and the Lord is making you who you are, and the Lord has put us together. Let's figure it out. And when you're in a gospel community of belonging, you know that everyone should believe that we all need a savior, that we're all broken people that trust in the Lord, that no one's got it put together. Isn't that, isn't that a welcoming community, just to be you? I would think so. Gospel and grace of Christ gives us peace to be vulnerable. It also guides us to make commitments. Uh, one of the hang-ups hang with community is we're never sure if we are trying to force our way into a community or whether that's the community we're supposed to belong to. But if you take a step back and you look at this passage, there's someone at work providing your community, and it's not you. It's not me. It's not another pastor. It's, it, it's the Lord. Follow with me. Verse 13 God baptized us into one body. Verse 18, God arranged the members of the body, each one of them as he chose. Verse 24, God composed the body to have no division, but for its members to care for one another. Verse 28, God appointed each of us with our very gifts to serve the body. Who's at work? The Lord our God is at work. There's a gospel and a grace there that says, when the Lord saved me and he... And, and he brought me into union with Christ. He brought me into the body of Christ as well. And he's, that same good Lord is shepherding me here. So okay. This is a gospel teaching, preaching, practicing church. 
Let's give it a good, committed chance. Let me show up. Let me, let me commit. I know this is the second time I'm quoting Lewis, but I will do it anyway. This is in your, uh, your bulletin. A secret master of ceremonies has been at work. Christ, who said to the disciples, Ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you, can truly say to every group of Christian friends, You have not chosen one another, but I have chosen you for one another. Friendship is the instrument by which God reveals to each the beauties of all the others. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that what you see here in this text? God bringing you to the body for you to belong, for you to thrive to all the others. And third, uh, the gospel and grace of Christ produces a change of heart that leads us to be generous. This is hopefully not the most confusing part. One of the hang-ups, one of the ways in which we trip in our relationships is while our hearts want community, there are deeper motivations that often distort community. Let me give you an example. Sometimes we approach community thinking about only serving our needs. What can they do for me? What can they do for me? And that's a distorted need. I say distorted because having needs, are, it's part of who we are and it's actually really healthy for the church for people to express their needs. But distorted needs is all about you know, having people in, satisfy the insatiable need for community that, that only God can supply. Right? But there's also, there's also giving. We can give quite selfishly, not selflessly. It appears selfless to give, but if you're giving in order to kind of have a moral tyranny over that person, then it's quite selfish to, to commit cheaper things for invaluable things like that person's dignity. Right? If you've ever had someone give something to you and you feel like you're obligated to them, and you know they did that intentionally, <laughs> you know what I'm talking about then. You know that sometimes people give and give and give even when it's not welcome. They're blowing up your phone, always asking you how you're doing, always asking for your time, your weekends, each evening, and you're like, let me breathe. Like the needy person is sucking you dry, and, and the giving person is choking you, <laughs> jamming their affection down your throat, and you're just like, ah! And both are quite detrimental to community. Both of them are serving themselves in their own way. Right? The needy person saying, how, how can I use you for me? And the giving person is doing the same thing. How can I give to you to make you serve my needs? Make me feel significant, important. Of course, it creeps in slowly. Um, I'm a stay-at-home parent, so this is something that's familiar to me. <laughs> um, when you give up your career to raise a family, and your peers are going off and they're doing wonderful things. You kind of look upon that and you're like, what did I give up? I lost the sense, my sense of self in my career. And so you try to build your sense of self in your children. So you pour yourself out for your kids. You give them every opportunity to be, you know, to be excellent and excel. And you're thinking to yourself, this is such selfless love. I want them to be this perfect image of everything I wanted to be for myself. And meanwhile, they're suffocating. Because they realize you, your selfless parenting is really about you and not about them. Again, giving can be quite toxic if it's self-centered uh, self uh, self in its motivation. Well, how does the gospel and grace of Christ move that heart to make us generous, both in giving and in receiving? One of my favorite uh, passages in Scripture, it, it comes from Ephesians 4. 
Paul talks about the person who used to steal, presumably to serve his own needs, and his gospel encouragement is not, do not steal. It's not simply, stop doing that bad thing, that self-serving thing. No, his encouragement is, out of love, go find work, not only to care for your own needs, but thinking about how you can serve other people's needs. It takes you from a place where you're thinking about yourself to now thinking about other people thriving. That's what the gospel, that's what the grace does to us. It makes us think about other people being more significant than ourselves. Isn't that the heart that Christ gives us? Philippians chapter uh, chapter 2, verse 3 to 5. Have this heart among yourselves, this mind among yourselves. Count other people more significant. That's generosity. It's saying, I want you to be you. I want you to be you. Obviously, not sinning. That's not you in Christ. I, I hope I don't have to clarify that. But like out beyond that, all that individual distinctness, I, I want that. And so you say to someone, you know what, let me give you ample chances, as many chances as you need, because I'd rather have you and you be you than not have you and avoid possibly rubbing shoulders with you in the wrong way. It's generous love. It says, I'll hold you. Sometimes we'll rub. Sometimes we'll give each other a chance. Sometimes we'll give each other forgiveness, but that's okay because that's generous love. I want you to be you, and I want you. Generous receiving also is important for the community that, that strives for belonging because need Need is something that the Lord uses to bring out other parts of the body. This is what Thomas Merton says. Again, it's on your bulletin. Selfless love consents to be loved selflessly for the sake of the beloved. The gift of love is the gift of the power and the capacity to love, and therefore to give love with full effect is also to receive it. So love can only be kept by giving it away, and it can only be given perfectly when it is also received. Wow. What does that look like? That's saying, if the Lord is going to awaken the capacity to love in your brothers and sisters in the church, you have to stop making your needs about you. Because when we make our needs about us, we're saying, I don't want to ask for help because that's going to make me feel diminished. I don't want to look needy. I don't want to look deficient in their eyes. But when our needs become about the body, then we say, Lord, how are you developing the capacity to love in this body? How can I show up and be honest with my needs so that the body can grow in its its capacity to love? Selfless love receives love selflessly for the sake of the body. And some of us, some of us really need that to receive love, even to simply engage the body. Because I don't know if there is anyone here who resonates with this, but we can be so... hurt in life, so convinced of of worthlessness that we would not even think we have anything to bring to a body, that we were at best a mistake. It takes a body to teach that individual his or her loveliness in the Lord. Say, no, you're not. You're not. I need you. I, I want you. Will you receive my love so that 
someday I can receive yours. That everyone else can receive yours. The gospel of God, the grace of God does that for us. It makes us look out of ourselves, at others, that they will belong, even as we do in the Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, again we pray, Lord, that you would reveal to us our need and then reveal to us your supply, both in you, in your Son, in your Spirit, as well as in the body of Christ. Father, we pray for for Grace Presbyterian Church. We pray for the community here. We We pray for Pastor Mark, especially for Pastor Mark, as it is always, always harder for the pastor to have a sense of belonging. Father, we pray for the brothers and sisters here to guard him, to protect him, to encourage him, that he, thriving in their love, continue to further their place of belonging and, under, and their well-being in the gospel. Father, we thank you for all the things that you are doing through this church, the amazing work that is being done uh, to plant a church in Stony Brook, as well as to encourage the church abroad. Lord, uh, Lord I, I thank you. We thank you this amazing grace and most of all for our amazing Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in Jesus name we pray amen